Hello, this is Bill Chamberlain and Clint Tatum with a special Popmatic podcast. Today we have an interview with Director of Photography Owen Roisman. Mr. Roisman has photographed the French Connection, The Exorcist, Tootsie, Network, and The Stepford Wives. The Stepford Wives will be showing at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street in the main auditorium on Saturday, August 13th at 2 p.m. Now on to the interview. What does a director of photography or cinematographer do, and what are his responsibilities? It's actually a very responsible job in the sense that we are like the last person that really puts the images on the screen. You know, it's a collaborative effort where the director, a production designer, a costume designer, and the cinematographer get together and talk about visually how they want to tell a story, and especially the director. And so it's a cinematographer's job to coordinate all of these ideas, and especially the director's vision, and transmit that vision to the screen. So we do that by designing the lighting and the selection of camera lenses, camera movement, in conjunction with the director, of course. Basically, we technically and artistically put those images on the screen to tell the story that the writer wrote. In doing research, your father was a cinematographer. Could you tell us about him and his influence on you becoming a cinematographer? Well, my father was a newsreel cameraman for 22 years for Fox Movie Tone News. And when newsreels became kind of defunct with the onset of television, he segued out of it. He was, you know, he was actually let go from, from Fox after all those years, along with a, a ton of other newsreel cameramen. And he got into TV commercials, mostly, and industrial films and things like that. He never really shot anything of note as far as feature films go or anything like that. He made his living mostly in commercials. And so his influence on me was basically, you know, I would go to the set with him sometimes as a kid, and even though I'd wasn't really paying attention to what he was doing that much and things like that and he gave me my first break when I came out of school to work with him uh, I have a nice photo of, of the two of us my very first day on the set working as an assistant cameraman he just instilled a lot of different values in me of course as I grew up and that was his major influence on me unfortunately he passed away at a very young age and he would have been amazed at the success I've had in the early 1970s, you photographed the French Connection, the gang that couldn't shoot straight, the taking of Pelham 123, Three Days of the Condor and Network, and all these films were made in New York. And in the audio commentary of the French Connection, there were a number of times William Freakin stated we didn't use a permit to shoot a scene. And I also remember watching an interview with Sidney Lumet who stated that filming in New York during that time was pretty wild and my question is, was making a movie during this time a form of controlled chaos? <laughs> I never thought of it as any kind of chaos whatsoever. First of all, you have to understand something. Billy Freakin, love him, <laughs> but he has a tendency to exaggerate certain things sometimes. And I don't know when the permit situation ever started. I have no idea when that began, but to my knowledge, we always had permission or permits or whatever we had to have to shoot in any different place. We had plenty of police working with us on the French Connection. We had total traffic control for all but maybe one shot that I remember, and it was very organized. I was fortunate to work with some 
very experienced production people, and I didn't notice any difference in working in the 70s, the 80s, or the 90s as far as as far as all those things went, whether it was New York or, or any place else. So New York, I, I never thought of anything as any kind of chaos. I, so I, I don't know what they're talking about. I attended a film festival once, and Bud Smith was one of the film editors of The Exorcist and was a guest speaker, and he talked about the first time he read the script to The Exorcist, and he stated, I can't believe they're going to film this. Did you ever have a moment where you said, I can't believe I'm filming this? Oh, I never never thought that, no, because, well, I mean, it all started with the novel. The novel was amazing. If you've all read the novel, you'll know what I mean. It was brilliant. And then Bill Blatty, who, William Peter Blatty, who wrote the novel, also wrote the screenplay. And his screenplay was, of course, equally as good. And both Blatty and Freakin gave me a couple of different different things that they used to research and come up with the with the whole movie, with the entire movie. Blatty derived his screenplay, well, his book, from from the archives at Georgetown University about the exorcism of, and this is real stuff, the exorcism of a, I forgot, I think it was a 14 or 12-year-old boy, and that's what he wrote the novel based on whatever he gathered from Georgetown University archive. And I got to read that, and it was like scarier than the book as far as I was concerned. And then Freakin gave me a tape, an audio tape of an actual exorcism of an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old boy. I think it was an eight-year-old boy in Italy. And it was in Italian. So I couldn't understand all the words, but you get the feeling of it. And the sounds that came out of this boy's mouth were far scarier than anything that was in the movie. I thought that that what we did was tame by comparison to the real events. I always felt when we did it, this was going to be something special. How big, how good it, it was going to be, I don't think anybody ever knew because with any kind of film like that and that type of genre, you're walking a very thin line as far as is it going to be successful or is it going to be a big laugh, a big joke, because you know how many of those pictures have failed over the years. But we all knew that it was going to be something special, but none of us probably, especially me, had any idea that it was going to be as big, as as successful as it has, has been. And I'm curious, did you get the job on the Stepford Wives because of The Exorcist? <laughs> You'd have to ask Brian Forbes that, I think. But but it makes sense that I'm, it probably had something to do with it. Uh, let's face it, when, you, when you're choosing a cinematographer, I imagine when a director's choosing a cinematographer, one of the things he's doing is looking at his previous work. And based on that, he's going to decide whether he wants this person to shoot his film. Could, could you just discuss a little bit the visual style of the Stepford Wives, what, what you were going for? Well, in all my films, what I tried to do was, the best way to describe it is I try to keep it believable. And, you know, some people say natural or, or realistic or anything. I wanted it to be believable. It, in The Exorcist, the same way. And in The Stepford Wives, because of the script and the way it was laid out and my conversations with Brian and how we saw portraying this film and putting it on the screen, I felt that certain parts of it would work best if they were very natural looking and other parts would work best if they were a little stylized and enhanced, you might say, and made a little scarier as far as the lighting and the camera angles and things like that go. So basically... It's the way I approached every film, and that was the screenplay dictated to me what the visual style was going to be.
You were the director of photography on Play It Again, Sam. Did you go back and look at old Humphrey Bogart movies to see how other cinematographers filmed Bogey? You know, I don't remember if I if I did that or not. I doubt if I went too far into those things. I might have looked at a couple of old films with Bogart in them. But, you know, I mean, let's face it, it wasn't Bogart that I was shooting. It was it was somebody that was dressed and made up to to look like Bogart or resemble him anyway. What I tried to do was try to always light it in a way that you could get a feeling, a hint of a Bogart because of the clothes, the trench coat and the hat and, and the way he sat. And it was a lot in the actor, what he did to get that character on screen. I just try to light it in an interesting way so that you really couldn't see his face clearly, but you could feel him. And his voice and his mannerisms were really carried that. So I don't remember how much research I did on that film for that. It was just a matter of the way I interpreted the script and thought it would be best how to, how to visually tell that story. When you photographed Tootsie, what challenges did you have filming Dustin Hoffman as Dorothy Michaels? Do you have a couple of extra hours? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's face it. Dustin is not the most attractive man in the world, so to make him look like a woman, that in itself is a big challenge. One of the things I, you know, normally when I light a woman, most women, not all, but most women, I'm going to try to light from as close to the front as possible, what we call frontal or flat lighting and or full lighting and they wanted her to wear glasses and one of the problems was if you light like that from the front and somebody has glasses on you usually see the light reflected in the glasses so I spoke to one of my friends at Panavision actually at the time it was Bob Gottschalk the founder of Panavision and told them the problem I was facing and they came up with some non-reflective glass, which now you, you know is a very common thing. But at the time, they didn't have anything like that. And they, we had glasses made up with this non-reflective glass surface so that I could light right from as close to the lens as I wanted to, and you wouldn't see anything reflected. That was the first challenge. The second challenge was couldn't let the light get too hot on his face because he had so much makeup on that it would just drip and the makeup would come off and that would be a problem. So I had to work with cooler lights. And by working with cooler lights, I had to work with faster film so that I could have enough exposure. And we didn't have very cool lights in those days. It was all the, the normal incandescent lighting. That was before, well, that was actually, we had HMIs by then. But anyway, I had, a, I had to work out some lighting schemes that would work and make it look believable for him. And also his wardrobe. There were so many things about it. Because we had to make it, the, the object that Sydney and I talked about was making it look like it was believable to the people in the movie that this could be a woman. I mean, that, that it could be acceptable. And therefore, then the audience would accept it. Because otherwise, if you made it look so ridiculous or made him look so ridiculous that those characters in the movie couldn't possibly believe that it was a woman, then it just wouldn't work as a film. And so that was the biggest challenge we had with Dustin. When the character Dorothy Michaels first appears in Tootsie, she's walking down a crowded street. And this is just a great movie moment. Could you discuss the creative end that made that moment happen? I don't remember exactly exactly how we came up with it, but I know Sydney and I talked about it and figured that the best way to do it would be with a long lens. I think we used a 500 millimeter or even greater longer lens than that. And 
very carefully stage it so that those are all extras that are walking with him in front of him and behind him and everything. It was all choreographed and staged with the assistant director. Had to be technically laid out very carefully so that he could be in focus all the time. And we wanted the other people to be as much out of focus as possible. So your eye would go strictly to Dustin. And, of course, Dustin is, a, is an actor, and he's a great actor, would you know do little things like his little bobble, the way he walked, and, and things like that, just to make himself stand out as subtle as it would be. So it was a matter of just figuring out how to make it work and, and, and how to execute it technically and artistically. It's a great shot. You know, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a shot that I love very much from the film because it took a lot of work. It was very hard to do, but it paid off. You made two crime films. One is called The Black Marble and the other one is called Straight Time. And in my opinion, both sadly neglected movies. The Black Marble is based on a novel by Joseph Wambaugh, who was an L.A. police officer who became a novelist. And Straight Time was based on No Be So Fierce by Edward Bunker, who was a criminal who became a novelist. Could you talk about, I know they were both on the set. I was listening to the commentaries. Could you talk about Wambaugh and Bunker and compare and contrast these two men? Well, it couldn't be any more 180 degrees the opposite <laughs> other than the fact that they were both writers. Wamba, of course, was a career policeman, and he was a very engaging... He, I mean, he's still around. I haven't seen him in a long time, but Joe was always a very engaging guy and, and uh, very bright, very prolific. could write a novel in, like, I think he said he wrote most of his novels, like, in a couple of months, which is very quick. And great sense of humor, just a terrific guy to be around, very positive all the time. Bunker, I never got to know that well at all, uh, but, you know, he was a career criminal. He spent most of his life in jail, and I believe that's where he wrote the novel while he was in jail. I'm not sure, but he was a hardened criminal. He he was a decent guy, you know, I mean, but I never really got to know him that well, whereas Joe I did get to know pretty well. Of course, Harold Becker and I became very good friends, and, and Joe and Harold became good friends. So I spent more time with Joe, and socially and professionally. Uh, whereas Bunker, I really didn't get to, to, to spend much time with at all. But they were like 180 degrees opposite people. One's a career criminal, and the other's a career policeman. I came across an interview with Irving Kirshner in an American film magazine, and in the interview he stated he wanted you for a return of The Man Called Horse because you were a New York cameraman and you would come into it fresh and ready to solve problems in a different way. He goes on to state, Owen was a great. He came out of the experience saying you were a lot better cameraman as a result of working on that film. What was it about working on The Return of a Man Called Horse that made you a better cameraman? Well, first of all, I think coming out of any film, every film, made me a better cameraman because I would have another film under my belt as far as experience goes. So you can't help but get a little bit better. But the thing about with Kirsch, who ended up, you know, he and I were dear, dear friends right to the end. I mean, he just passed away very recently. And Kirsch was also a photographer, so he understood photography very well. And when I first had a conversation with him about it, and I asked him, I said, what made you want to shoot, you know, want me to shoot your film? And he said the same, basically the same thing. He said, I figured you'd bring a fresh approach to it because you've never done a Western before. 
And I said, that's, that's good. And what I did was I did bring a fresh approach to it. I came up with a style that I talked to him about, and he totally understood, and he, and he bought into it immediately. And he, was, he just loved the ideas that I had. And we just had a great time doing it. What can I say? It, it's, it's, uh, you know, it was one of the best experiences for me. But it, it also set up a lifetime friendship with, a, with somebody that I admired very much. So I know I miss him very much. But it was fun. It was fun. I did what he asked, which is I brought a fresh approach, and he loved the approach. So it was always positive. Every aspect of it was positive, positive, positive for me. So I had to come out of it better. And I, and I had never shot a Western before, so that, that in itself made me better. Sidney Lumet stated in the audio commentary of Network that you two were corrupting the camera. And in the making of Network, he said you went from natural lighting to dramatic lighting. Could you discuss the difference between natural lighting and dramatic lighting as it applies to Network? I have no idea what Sidney meant by corrupting the camera. That, that's one you'd have to ask him. But as far as the natural lighting and dramatic lighting, Again, it's it's a, an approach that I take all the time, and that is I let the words, I let the screenplay dictate to me what I'm going to do. And, and of course, the director's vision, how he wants to see something. But there were scenes, because Paddy Chayefsky was the kind of writer that he wrote it in the screenplay. The words were there, the description of the scenes. When you read his screenplay, especially Network, Network was by far the best screenplay I've ever read in my life. And one of the things about it was the description of each scene, the light, the, the, the mood, the feeling, it was all there. In some cases, it just felt like it should be very natural looking because it was an everyday thing. There were other scenes that required a more dramatic approach to them. And so I would adjust my lighting to fit that approach. As far as camera angles and things like that, Sidney Lumet, he knows all that. He's got it all written down in a book before he even starts a film. And I rarely even had a chance to say anything about what lenses we used. That was all Lumet. My main thing on that picture, my main function on that picture was to create the mood with the lighting. And, and so I tried to do that wherever necessary. There were many scenes that called for different types of lighting. It's, it's all in there. It's, it's in the movie. And so I just followed what my instincts told me to do as far as the screenplay went. I was in college when True Confessions first came out. You make me feel old when you say that. Oh, <laughs> well, it makes me feel old to say it, too. <laughs> you must be around 50-ish. I am 50. Just turned 50. Go. Okay. I was in college when True Confessions first came out, and this movie starred Robert De Niro and Robert Duvall, and was directed by Eula Grosberg. And I remember talking to my professors about the movie, and we were struck by the long silences in the movie. I'm curious, what were you, what were Eula Grosberg, the actors, and yourself trying to accomplish? Well, I mean, as far as the acting goes, that's Ulu. I mean, uh, I have, I have nothing to do with that. So uh, that, that's him and, and the actors. And what I didn't understand until we were probably halfway through the movie, frankly, because it was a murder mystery. And so I remember at Daly's one night, I was talking to Ulu and I said, do you feel that too many things are being hidden as far as clues and things like that go as far as with the story? And he said, I don't care. I, he said, to me, this is a character study. I'm making a character study, and that's what it is. That's what this whole film is about. And that's when a bell went off for me. 
And I said, my God, I never thought of it that way when we started the film, because he hadn't told me that up front. And then I realized why he was doing everything he was doing, and it all fell into place for me. It made sense. And True Confessions, uh, I agree with you. True Confessions is like, although you, you were talking about the other films earlier, but, but, but True Confessions was one of those that was not appreciated as much as it should have been. Uh, I think... I think it took an intelligent audience to really appreciate True Confessions. And, and everything I was worried about as far as clues and the story and mystery, they were all in the movie. It's just a matter of paying attention, and you'll, you'll see them. Uli didn't put it out there right in your face. You had to think about it. But let's face it, we were working with two of the finest actors of our time, of maybe ever, and they were at their best as far as I was concerned. They were just great. In fact, either one could have played the other part, too, and it would have worked the same. That's how good they were. So when they had long pauses and silence and things like that, that was still great acting. I mean, you could sit and look at those guys' faces all day long and, and not, you know, I mean, and not feel cheated if they don't say anything because they're doing it all with their body language and, the, and their facial expressions. But I had nothing to do with that, frankly. I only tried to light it in a way that it felt good, and it was a period film, and I tried to capture the look of that period and, and make that work. You were also the director of photography on TAPS, and Timothy Hutton had done Ordinary People, but this was the first major roles for Sean Penn and Tom Cruise. I'm curious, did they come to seek advice on how to work in front of the camera, or did you help to show them the ropes of making a movie? Two things. That One, it wasn't their first major uh, part. Sean Penn, it was his first movie. That's the first movie he ever acted in, as far as I know. And Tom Cruise was originally hired on that movie as an extra. Well, not an extra, he played a bit part. He, w he was going to play a very bit part in it. And when Harold Becker fired the guy that was playing the part that Tom ended up playing, he moved Tom up into that part. So it was a major breakthrough. I don't know if Tom had done anything before that or not, but that's the one that really launched him, I think. Of course, he went from there into risky business, I think, after that. As far as helping them out or showing them the ropes, that's not really a job that I do. Can't do that. Uh, I can sometimes guide somebody as far as making sure that they hit their marks and things like that, if, if need be. But, you know, as far as performing in front of the camera and all of that, that's a training that they have to have ahead of time. And let's face it, it was a fantastic cast. I mean, there was a lot of great actors in that. Uh, Ronnie Cox was in it, too. Ronnie's a wonderful actor. And Timothy is brilliant, and, and, and uh, they just gelled together. So um, I don't think anybody ever knew that Sean or, or Tom would end up being the superstars that they become. But, you know, all I can say, it was a pleasure to work with them. They were, they were great right from the beginning. And, and, in fact, Sean Penn, I found him looking through the camera a lot. He was, he was around the camera asking questions about it, looking through. You could tell he was going to someday direct a movie. And this is early on his first movie. Oh, it was great. It was a great experience. This is just a favorite movie moment of mine, and it's the final scene between Robert Redford and Max Foncito in Three Days of the Condor. It's a wonderfully perverse moment. The Foncito character has been trying to kill Condor, played by Redford, throughout the movie. And in an interesting twist, the hitman is the last person Condor can trust. I'm just curious, do you have any memories of filming that particular scene? I have I very vivid memories of it, actually, because there was a lot of things behind the scenes that went on about filming that scene. First of all, again, you know, working with, with great Sidney Pollock and then 
Max von Seedorf was, uh, you know, fantastic to work with, of course. And it was not my first time with him, as, as you know, after having done The Exorcist with him. And the fact he's Swedish and my wife is Swedish and they used to yak Swedish all the time to each other. It was really just another scene in the movie, but I remember it well. We, we shot it in a house in Long Island someplace on location. And I know we had to play certain times of the day because of, you know, when they go outside afterwards. And we couldn't really time everything to be exactly that time of day that it had to be so a lot of it we shot day for dawn shot a lot of it in the middle of the day and made it look like early morning and you know it's something that takes place at night in this house it was just a, what can i say about it it was it was a scene from a movie with good actors great actors performing at their best and little plot twists which are always fun so that's what i can remember the most about it once again, another favorite scene of mine, the final shot in the taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. It has this wonderful close-up of Walter Matthau's face. I'm curious, was this in the final shooting script or something you came up with? I imagine it was in the script. I don't remember. It, probably if it wasn't in the script, we wouldn't have shot it. But it probably said something in the in the script where um, we end up on a close-up of Matthau giving some kind of an expression, you know. But that was uh, Joseph Sargent and working it out with Matthau about that expression, coming up with that expression. Now, Matthau, you know, was on camera and off camera, was a funny, funny man. And he was terrific with doing things like that. So it was great. I'm sure he probably, and I don't remember that vividly, but I'm sure he cracked up everybody on the set when he came up with that that facial expression. And if I recall, we shot it with a little wider angle lens. And I don't remember if we did a move in or not. I haven't looked at the film in many years, but in my mind, I picture it as it's a wide-angle lens doing a little bit of a move in or something on his face just to enhance all of it, or he leans into camera and just to accentuate his expression and distort his face slightly, things like that. Because if we didn't do that then, I would be doing that now because I probably learned more since then. The way movies have changed over the past 15 years or so, as far as how they're made and how we watch them as people are watching films on their mm -hmm. cell phones, and heck, people are even shooting films on their cell phones. What do you think this is going to do to the art of cinematography? The art of cinematography doesn't really change because, well, I'll, I'll, this is a two-part answer. The art of cinematography doesn't change because still somebody has to design, I mean, one of the things that, that we do as cinematographers is the composition, the lighting, and the camera movement. Those things still have to be created, no matter what you use as a tool to create them with or capture them with. So whether it be a cell phone or whether it be an anamorphic Panavision camera, you still have to get those three elements, and, and you have to tell the story with those three elements. So like when people talk about shooting with digital these days, they say, say well, you don't even need light. Well, maybe you don't need lights to get an exposure, but you have film that is fast enough now to do the same thing. But to create the lighting mood that you want, you have to place the lights in a certain place. Or if there is light there already, you have to be able to model that light by using what we call maybe negative fill, which is, is taking light off a subject to give it some modeling to, get the, to, to create the proper mood that you want. And the choice of lenses to get the, the perspective that's going to help convey that shot or that scene those are all things that have to be created and that's all something that the cinematographer does so and you can add all those things to your first question if you want i don't think that's going to change it that much how people see it that's what's changing and that's that's the part that bothers me the most because 
if somebody's if I'm going to shoot a movie and somebody's going to be looking at it to appreciate it and they're going to be looking at it on their iPhone or on their iPad something like that they're not going to see the little things that I do they're not going to be able to tell and that really goes down to actors costume designers everybody really sound especially how can somebody really judge a movie or appreciate a movie when they're looking at it on on what is really an inferior screen now the quality on those things is quite amazing i think i work on a 30 inch monitor at home on my computer and i get beautiful pictures because i do a lot of still photography and so i'm i'm doing all the work on it right there with photoshop and it's great for that i never watch movies on my 30 inch monitor at home because it's just it's just not enough i mean i i look i watch it on a 60 inch monitor where I can at least see something decent, or I'll go to the theater and see it, which is even better, of course. I, I don't, you know, I, it's 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 the way it is. It's the changing times. I I accept it, and I love the technology, and I love where things are going technically. I think it's terrific. However, I just don't, you know, I don't I don't appreciate it as as uh, much as I do looking at something on a big screen. That's the way I see it. That was what it was intended to be looked at on. Or, or on a large screen television, high def. Now you, you talked about your, your still work. Uh, what, what is still photography? What kind of fulfillment does that bring to you that, say, cinematography couldn't do? Couldn't do? Well, I wouldn't say that it brings anything that cinematography couldn't bring. The one thing that I get from still photography is, um, and I shoot digital, only digital stills these days, and what I love about still photography is that I shoot the image. I don't ask anybody about it. It's all my my creation. I then put it in my computer, and using tools like Adobe Photoshop, I can manipulate the image any way I want to and create the final image that I, I want. So I love that because I have no pressure, and I have nobody looking over my shoulder telling me what they think I should do or anything like that. It's all my creation. I have nobody to blame if things go wrong or things like that. So I love the independence it gives me. I would like to thank Owen Roisman for taking the time to do the interview. And remember, the Stepford Wives will be playing at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street in the main auditorium on August 13th at 2 p.m. See it on our big screen, and it's free.